going to be looking at Judges chapter 13, beginning in verse 24, and we're going to be looking through the end of chapter 15, so covering over two chapters of Scripture. Before we read, I just want to say that, that I love preaching through books of the Bible. I love kind of working through them. The reason being they force you to engage with texts that you might not otherwise engage with. I've preached Samson before, but I've preached the story of Samson and Delilah. I've not preached chapters 14 and 15. And as I dove into this and began studying it, I realized that I have probably more questions about the text than I have answers. It's a difficult text be honest with you, it's a difficult text. And so my hope this morning is I'm going to preach the answers to you and we'll keep wrestling with the questions because at the end of the day, there are still mysterious things about God that are hard for us to reckon with. And that's okay. Amen. Amen. I remember very early on a pastor who I respect dearly, who happened to be my dad at the time, made a statement that has stuck with me that if we could fully explain away the mystery of God, there would be no need to worship him. If our God is a God we can fully comprehend, then he is not a God worth worshiping. And so there's some complexity in our text, and we're going to try to work through that, not overlook it, but just be okay with the fact that there are times we approach God's word and we have more questions than we have answers. But praise God that he still gives some answers, and so we can know who he is. Coming toward the end of our series in the book of Judges, this series we've entitled Broken Leaders and God's Unbroken Promise. I'm not going to read all two of these chapters to you, but I want to read into your hearing Judges chapter 13, beginning in verse 24 and reading through verse, or chapter 14, verse 4. So let me invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Judges chapter 13, and let's begin in verse 24. The author writes this, says, So... The woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. Then the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtal. Chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. He went back and told his father and his mother, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines for a wife? But Samson told his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Now his father and mother did not know this was from the Lord who wanted the Philistines to provide an opportunity for a confrontation. At that time, the Philistines were ruling Israel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word and for its complexity. I thank you that you are a God who is worthy of worship, that you are a God who has revealed himself, but you are a God who holds some mystery to yourself, and we got to be okay with that. And I pray that we will worship you all the more because of it. I pray you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And I want to preach this morning from this idea Sin won't stop a sovereign God. Sin won't stop a sovereign God. There is uh, an interesting phenomenon that, that happens in the church in America today. I say it's a phenomenon, but in fact, it, it's been around for quite some time, probably as long as Christianity has been in North America. There is this tendency to judge the activity of God and the movement of God in, in this country, in this world, based solely on numbers in the church, the statistics. There are those who are so concerned about the fact that 
uh, are so concerned about the numbers as they pertain to Christian activity in the United States, and specifically that they are declining. Now, I'm not saying it's something we should gloss over. I'm just saying we don't determine God's work by numbers. You know, just to give you an example, there's been some research done by the Pew Research that reported from a survey done in 2019 that 65% of American adults now describe themselves as Christians when asked about their religion. That's down from 77% just a decade prior. Now, keep in mind, these are simply what people identify as. We know that it is highly unlikely that 65% of American people who claim to be Christians are actually Christians. But the same research revealed that 10 years ago, about 17% of people identified as having no religious affiliation, and now it's up to 26%. So more than one in four people in America claim no religious affiliation. That's atheism, that's agnosticism, and that's no particular, no particular faith preference. And people have deemed this in our country, the, uh, the United States, the, the secularization of the country, that's what they call it. And, and so they want to know what's the cause. And so you hear it from politicians and preachers alike. The United States has gotten away from its Christian values. The government is now rampant with idolatry and sin, and so the nation's being led astray, as if the American government was ever not rampant with idolatry and sin. But that's a different sermon for a different day. But I heard a message from a pastor, I actually listened to it this past week, in which he was trying to explain what we are seeing in America and the American church, and he made this statement that I found fascinating. He said the gospel is just not as powerful in this country as it once was. The gospel is just not as powerful in this country as it once was. That didn't sit well with me. And I started to try to think, why does that statement not sit well with me? And the best I could come up with is this. It's, it's that the last time I checked, the gospel's power had never been determined by whether or not we believe it. The gospel is powerful all by itself. The gospel is still breathing life into dead bones. The gospel is still taking dead men and women and giving them life. The gospel is still bringing people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Paul says it like this in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, God's power and movement in this world has never been determined by statistics. And listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about those numbers. It does concern me that we are watching a steady decline of people who once claimed religious affiliation now claim no religious affiliation. We should care about that. But I'm here to tell you that the gospel is still strong to save. It is still saving, and despite what some of our cultural commentators may argue, the gospel is not losing any ground, because the very gospel we believe in declares to us that the war is already over and the kingdom has come. There is not an inch of this world where God does not say, it's mine. How does the gospel lose ground? Again, what I'm trying to say is that sin, whether it be that of, of our own making or sin of a nation... It will not stop a sovereign God from accomplishing whatever he wants to accomplish. And, and, and not to sound too cliche, but it's often in the darkest places where the light appears so much brighter. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Do you know where the church is absolutely flourishing right now? In one of the most oppressive nations? It's in China. Despite a communist government that bans Christianity, despite real persecution of Christians, despite fear and intimidation, the church in China is growing faster than anyone could have ever predicted. 
Listen, listen to this recorded by Re- Rebecca McLaughlin. She says that China, a country that has tried hard to imagine and enforce no religion at all, conservative estimates from 2010 put China's Christian population at over 68 million, representing 5% of its vast population. But Christianity is spreading so fast that experts believe China could have more Christians than the U.S. by 2030. And that it could be a majority Christian nation by 2050 in the midst of an oppressive government under threat of real violence and real persecution. The church is flourishing. Listen to me. The Christian church in China is growing at a rate of 10% of its population becoming Christians every year. Sin, whether it be that of an individual or at a systemic level, will not stop a sovereign God from accomplishing whatever he plans to do. And that reality played out on both an individual and a national level is what we see in our text this morning. This idea that sin won't stop a sovereign God. That's the idea I want to focus on as we consider Samson this morning. As we consider this idea, there are a few things I want you to note along the way. Here's here's the first one. The presence of God's Spirit in our lives does not remove the possibility of sin. And we've got to get that, that the presence of God's Spirit in our lives does not remove the possibility of sin. You know, we left off last week having come to the end of Samson's birth narrative. So Samson hadn't even come on the scene yet, and a whole chapter is just devoted to to his birth narrative. And so we pick up with his birth in Judges 13, 24, and again, reading... Reading through verse 1 of chapter 14, we read this. So the woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. The boy grew and the Lord blessed him. Then the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtalal. Samson went down to Timnah and saw a young Philistine woman there. Now, a couple of things to note. The first is this, that the Lord blessed Samson. We see it there at the very beginning. Now, we have to remember, going back to chapter 13, why Samson is blessed. The call, we have to remember the call that was placed on Samson. And we learned in Judges 13, verse 5, that Samson was a Nazarite. Do you remember that? That Samson was a Nazarite. Judges 13, verse 5, For indeed, you will conceive and give birth to a son. You must never cut his hair because the boy will be a Nazarite to God from birth and he will begin to save Israel from the power of God. Of the Philistines. So, what is a Nazarite? Well, we got to go back to number six for that. And in number six, we learn that a Nazarite vow was taken by individuals as a way to consecrate or to set themselves apart for a time of service to the Lord. The word Nazarite comes from the Hebrew word Nazir, meaning consecrated or separated. It's literally in the word there. And so typically, these vows were taken for a specific time or a specific purpose. What I'm getting at is that most Nazarite vows weren't for the entirety of someone's life. They were for a particular season of life where they were going to seek to do something for God or to set themselves apart for God's purpose. But the Bible does mention three individuals who were Nazarites from birth until death. Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. 
And so during the time frame of the, bow, of the vow, so that means for those three individuals, for the entirety of their life, there were three primary ways in which this vow was reflected to people around them. First, they weren't to drink any alcohol or to drink anything from which alcohol came. That's why if you remember when, when Samson's mother was pregnant, she couldn't even eat grapes, the angel of the Lord told her. If you don't know that, that's where, that's where wine comes from. I know you're good Christians, you didn't know that, but that's where, that's where wine comes from. It comes from grapes. Couldn't drink any alcohol. But not only that, they couldn't cut their hair. It was a sign that they had taken a Nazarite vow. We know, if you know anything about the story of Samson, that that's going to play a key part next week when we get to Samson and Delilah. But the third thing is that they were to stay ceremonially clean, specifically by avoiding the dead. And number six talks about even if your mother and your father dies, you can't go by that body. You can't be close to that burial. You cannot participate because you are to be separated, set apart, consecrated to the Lord. You are to be holy. And this was to be the mark of Samson's life. From birth to death, set apart for the purposes of God. And as a result of this vow for Samson, it says there very early on that the blessing of God was on him and the Spirit of God was with him. But I want you to notice this. It says in verse 25, Then the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtal. Now that word stir there is a very interesting Hebrew word. Because the Hebrew word there could be translated, it's most often translated like to strike, to pound, to harass, or to plague. And so our English translation kind of softens the language there a little bit. When it says the Holy Spirit stirred him, a better reading of that would be the Holy Spirit harassed him. The the Holy Spirit pounded him. The Holy Spirit was striking him and afflicted him. And so even with that word, you see here at the very beginning a tension between Samson and the Spirit of God. Because he appears to be somewhat in conflict with the Spirit of God. Lawson Stone, a commentator, notes this, and I thought it was helpful. He says, the combination of such a troubling term, a term for stir up or to pound or to harass, he says, with the blessing of Yahweh in 1324 indicates this tension that will animate the whole story. Samson was Yahweh's chosen servant, hallowed by a special sacred vocation, marked out by uncut hair and propelled by the spirit of Yahweh, but at the same time, The spirit was an unsettling force prodding and driving him. So let me say it like this. The spirit had to push Samson. The spirit had to harass Samson. The spirit had to strike Samson because although Samson had the blessing of God, although Samson had the spirit of God, Samson still wanted to do what Samson wanted to do. And in that, you and I are not that different from Samson. It is a reminder to us that the presence of God's blessing and the presence of God's spirit in our lives does not remove the possibility for sin to be present in our life. Paul recognizes this in himself. I mean, after in Romans, after talking about the beautiful new life that is his in Christ, the fact that that he has been set free from sin and death, he writes this in Romans 7, 15, for I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. You ever been there? I mean, we can be honest. The Spirit of God dwells within us. The blessing of God is on us because we are in Christ. And yet we can say, why is it that I keep doing what I don't want to do? And this thing that I know I should do, I can't do it. Oh, it's because the Spirit of God, the blessing of God does not remove the possibility for the presence of sin. 
Paul understood that the presence of the Spirit and the new life in Christ does not remove the temptation to sin. And here's what I'm getting at. Two things I want to push you with. First, if this is the case, that the presence of God's Spirit in our lives does not remove the possibility of sin, then you and I must be diligent to fight temptation and sin when it is present in our lives. Here's what I'm getting at. The Spirit doesn't give you a pass. There is sin, there is real temptation, there is struggle and heartache, and we have to be diligent to fight for holiness. If there is anything that the book of Judges has taught us, it is that in light of our holy God, sin should never be taken lightly in the life of a Christian. I want you to hear me say this, though. I think part of our problem when it comes to fighting sin is we often spend more time trying to kill our guilt and condemnation that comes after we sin than we do actually fighting sin. Now, let me say that again. Okay, we, we, we often spend more time trying to kill our guilt and condemnation that comes after we sin than we do actually fighting sin. We've seen this throughout the book of Judges, have we not? Why is it that the people of God turn back to God? Throughout the book of Judges, it's not because they understood the weight of their sin. The consequences were too much. And they didn't want God to deal with their sin. They wanted God to remove the consequences. But here's the thing, too. I think for us as believers, and maybe this is you and you can resonate with it. If not, then let me just talk to myself for a minute. I think often our desire to deal with guilt and condemnation stems from a good place, right? Because we think we should feel that guilt and condemnation for a minute. We feel like God will be more pleased with us if we carry that guilt and condemnation when we sin, and then we try to fight it after a few days. I mean, I got to be talking to somebody. It's not just me, right? All right, like I, I sin, so it's like, all right, let me beat myself up for a couple days. Let me feel the weight of that. Let me take the guilt on myself, the condemnation on myself, and then after I feel that for a few days, then let me fight that guilt and condemnation. You know, I've done enough to pay penance. God's going to be pleased with me. But here's the thing. When we do that, we undercut the very gospel we claim to believe because the Bible tells us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. On the cross, Jesus took your guilt. He took your condemnation. You don't have to carry it. You just got to fight the sin. He is sufficient enough to deal with your guilt and your condemnation. And so if you are in this place feeling the weight of your sin, the guilt of your sin, the condemnation of your sin, there is no condemnation for you in Christ Jesus. He doesn't need you to carry that. He already took it. And his death was sufficient. And so we are freed not to beat ourselves up, but to, by the Spirit's power, fight for holiness in areas where we are weak. But church, it is a fight. See, when we understand what Christ has done for us, we'll begin to stop trying to shoulder the burden of guilt and condemnation and start actually fighting our sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. But second thing I want you to see, and then I'm moving on. If, if this is the case, that the presence of God's Spirit in our lives does not remove the possibility of sin, we have to fight diligently not to believe that the presence of temptation means the absence of God's Spirit. We have to fight diligently to believe that the presence of temptation means the absence of God's spirit. Here's, here's what I mean. Again, maybe I'm just preaching myself this morning. That's fine. I need the word too. There are times where I convince myself the fact that this temptation is still in front of me is evidence of the fact that I am just not walking with God like I should. That if I was really a Christian, let's be honest, I wouldn't still be fighting the same stupid thing. That if I was really a Christian, this, I wouldn't be battling the sin that I was battling before I was a Christian. 
But we have to fight diligently not to believe that the presence of temptation means the absence of God. In fact, sometimes it is the very Spirit of God and His presence that will lead us into situations knowing we'll be tempted in the midst of it. I I preached a sermon there. Right, the implication of our text, right, in chapter 14, verse 1, is that the stirring of the Spirit is what led him to go to Timnah, the very place he would be tempted by a Philistine woman who, if you remember anything about the people of God, he was not supposed to marry. Now, I want to be clear. It is not the Spirit of God. It will never be God himself who tempts you. The Bible says he can't do that. It was not God who tempted Samson, but it was the Spirit of God who led him to the place where he would be tempted. And I know sometimes that's, that's hard for us to reckon with, but think about it. Samson is foreshadowing Jesus here. I mean, you remember the beginning of Matthew 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. God the Father, through the Spirit of God, led the Son of God to the place where he would be tempted. Now, you might be thinking, well, why in the world would God do that? If God really wants me to be holy, why would his spirit lead me to places where I am tempted to be unholy? Well, I think there are two reasons for for this. The first one, so that God will get all the glory because he'll provide a way out. Oh, come on, church. He will provide a way out. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has come upon you except that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will always provide the way out. He will create the way of escape where there is no way so that you will be able to bear it. Sometimes God leads us into the place where we will be tempted so that we are forced to lean on God for the deliverance we need. And let me just tell you, it's never a bad thing to be reminded of your need to lean on God. But the second reason that God might lead us into the place where we will be tempted is because it's through the endurance in the midst of temptation that we receive the blessing of God. James says it like this in James 1 verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. And what's interesting is that the word for trials there in James 1 12 it has the same Greek root it's, it's, it's the noun form of the verb in Matthew 4. So when it says Jesus was tempted, that's a verb. And the same root word makes this word we translate as trial. You could read it as this. Blessed is the one who endures temptations. But this is also the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. There it is. Various temptations so that the proven character of your faith here it is more valuable than gold which though perishable is refined by fire may result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ it's almost as if the faith we need is forged in the midst of the fire it's almost as if the way you know what you actually believe is when you got to face something that challenges you to believe something else and then you know where you are with God The Lord is good. He wants our faith to be forged. But sometimes the only way it can be forged is by him showing us it might not be as strong in some areas as we think it is. So Samson, being led by and pushed by the Spirit, goes down to Timnah and right away, right away, you have a problem. 
Verse 1, he saw a young Philistine woman there. So here's the second truth that I want you to see this morning. Individual sin won't stop a sovereign God. Individual sin won't stop a sovereign God. So Samson, he's in Timnah. Why? Because the Spirit led him there. And he sees a Philistine woman there. And look at verse 2. He went back and told his father and his mother, pay attention. He says, I have seen a young Philistine woman in Timnah. Now go get her for me as a wife. Like there's, there's no way to sugarcoat this. Samson is violating the very law of God. The law that was given in Deuteronomy chapter 7 verses 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land, you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you. The Hethites, he lists seven other people. I'm not going to read them. He says, and the Lord your God delivers them over to you, and you defeat them. You must completely destroy them. Here it is. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. You must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Verse 6 ends with the Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples of the face of the earth. And while Samson was meant to be a representation of what Israel should be, he becomes a reflection of what they actually are. Now, I want you to notice something very important. Oh, this is, this is beautiful and painful at the same time. The first thing recorded in Scripture from Samson's mouth is a declaration of what he sees being right. Now, to some degree, Samson is, you know, he is the final judge. And at this point, he is fully embodying the very charge that will be leveled against Israel at the end of the book. The last statement in the book of Judges, right? Spoiler alert, okay? It doesn't get better at the end of Judges. The last verse is that in light of all that God has done, all the deliverance he has provided, all the judges he has raised up, after all that, Judges 21, 25, and in those days there was no king in Israel. Here it is, and everyone did whatever seemed right to him. If only Israel would have let Samson serve as an example to them because Samson's service begins, check this out, this is the painful part, with him doing what is right in his own eyes. And at the end of Samson's life, he loses his sight. Judges 16, 21, the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes. And we see Samson rebelling against the very commands of God, and it leads to a loss for Samson. He loses at every step of the way in the remainder of his story, but it does not thwart God. Let me show you what I mean. The reason why God led Samson to Timnah was because God wanted the Philistines to provoke Israel. God wanted the Philistines, for whatever reason, to be the ones to provoke conflict that would allow Samson to, honestly, to kill and to judge the Philistines. And it's exactly what happens. Samson makes a few visits to Timnah. So during his first visit, he sees the woman. This is me summarizing chapter 14 for you, okay? He, he makes a few visits to Timnah. During the first visit, he sees the woman. 
He goes back home. He tells his parents to go and arrange the marriage for him. And so the three of them end up traveling back to Timnah for that purpose. And now while on the way, something incredible happens. Samson's off by himself and a lion comes to attack him. And it says that the Spirit of God came upon Samson and allowed him to rip the lion apart with his bare hands. But Samson doesn't tell anybody about it. He doesn't even tell his parents. He meets the woman after he goes back to Timnah, and the implication there is that the marriage is arranged, and then they go back home. They make another trip to Timnah. This is the third trip, and this time it's for the marriage festival. Now the marriage well, let me back up. While traveling back for the marriage festival, Samson decides to go off by himself and revisit where he killed that lion, and he sees the lion carcass there. Now, it's, it's basically dried out at this point, which means it's been a couple months, and, and what has taken up residence in the carcass is honeybees. And so in the carcass of a lion is a hive with honey. And so he scoops up some of the honey. He eats it. He takes it to his parents. Parents don't know where, he comes, where it came from. He never told them about it. Gives them some honey. So they arrive for the marriage celebration. It's to last seven days. That was customary. And the Philistines bring 30 men to accompany Samson. Some people have in- interpreted that as being his bodyguard. Some people have just said they were men to care for him. But 30 men. And Samson decides to make a little wager with them. He's got a riddle for them. And he he says, I'll give you seven days to figure this riddle out. And at the end of the festival, at the end of the seven days, if you haven't figured it out, you've got to give me 30 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. He says, but if you do figure it out, I'll give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And so they agree. And so Samson gives them the riddle in chapter 14, verse 14. He says, so he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, and out of the strong came something sweet. And after three days, they were unable to explain the riddle. I'm not going to get into the Hebrew. The Hebrew there is beautiful. There's a point to how that poem is said, but it doesn't really matter for our sermon. Go back and do some research. But three days go by, and these guys have no idea what the riddle means. How could they? Samson's the only one who knows. He didn't tell his parents. He hasn't told anybody. It's not a normal riddle. I don't know about you. I have never seen honeybees in the carcass of a lion. I'm not going to figure this thing out. But these men, oh, they're mad about it. So they go to Samson's wife. Verse 15, on the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, persuade your husband to explain the riddle to us or we will burn you and your father's family to death. Did you invite us here to rob us? Okay, that riddle's gotten a little out of hand at this point. I've told some riddles. Death by fire has never come about. But these men are are mad. They think they're being deceived. They think they're being tricked. And in a sense, they are. Samson is telling them a riddle that isn't really a riddle. He's just telling them about something he saw that nobody else saw. And so the Bible says that Samson's wife nagged him so much that he explained it to her. If the Bible says the wife nagged the husband... She nagged the husband, okay? That's not, that's not indicative of all wives. I don't believe that. I'm just saying this wife nagged Samson. even says to the point of death. So Samson's like, if, if, if this, I'm not even going to look at my wife. If this woman doesn't stop talking, I'm going to die. I'm not going to ask anybody if they've been there.
<laughs> but did he die? Not yet, sister, not yet. Spoiler, it will be a wife who leads him there, though. All right. <laughs> so Samson ends up telling his wife, but we got real off track there. God, help us. All right, your word. It's not your fault, it's mine. All right. So Samson's just so worn out by his wife that he says, fine, I'll tell you. And so she tells, or he tells his wife, and his wife immediately goes and tells these men what the riddle means. And so the men come back and they, they answer Samson's riddle, and Samson is furious because there's only one other person who knows, and so he knows where they got the information from. And so Samson ends up insulting them because this is where the Hebrew poetry comes into play. The way they respond to the riddle is in a mocking way of how he presented the riddle to them in the first place in the Hebrew. And so they're mocking him because they figured it out. So Samson ends up insulting them. He insults his wife. He calls, them, calls her a heifer. And that's not just an English translation. It was just as offensive in the Hebrew as it is in the English. And look at what happens in verse 19. It says, the spirit of the Lord came upon, powerfully upon him. And he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men. He stripped them and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. And in rage, Samson returned to his father's house and his wife, listen to this, his wife was given to one of the men who had accompanied him. So at the end of this riddle, Samson lost. He lost the riddle. He lost some holiness because he is in a rage. He's killing people. He, is driven, he has been driven up until this point by his lust. He has been driven by his ego. He has been driven by his sin. And I don't want you to miss this. Despite Samson's shortcomings, God still accomplishes what he set out to accomplish. A conflict that began with the Philistines antagonizing Samson. It was a loss for Samson all along the way. And it was a loss because his sin was plaguing him on every step. But God still accomplished what he wanted to accomplish. There are two things I want to note as I try to apply this to you. And then we'll move on. Here's the first thing. There is, like Samson, an ever-present temptation to walk by sight and not by faith. That's sin. It's sin. What I mean is that there is a temptation to make everyday decisions based on what we see. That's what Samson did. He didn't care about God when he saw that Philistine woman. He liked what he saw. There, we, we face the same temptations to make everyday decisions based on what we see, what we think, and what we want without a thought of God's presence or God's purpose in our life. And this is contrary to what God calls us to in 2 Corinthians 5-7, where Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. Let me try to explain what I mean, because sometimes I know that can be some, somewhat of an ambiguous statement. What do we mean we walk by faith and not by sight? Often, church, we walk by sight because we remove God from the mundane. We walk by sight because we remove God from the mundane. We have somehow separated our life into the faith part and then the everyday part. We go to work without a thought of God's presence and God's purpose at our job. We go to school without a thought of God's presence and God's purpose in our learning. We clean our homes. We take our kids to practice. We go to the grocery store. We fill up our gas tank without a thought of God's presence and God's purpose in those things. We have separated our lives unknowingly at times into the sacred and then into what we can see. We, we separate our lives into the things that we turn to God for and consider him in 
and everything else that we do purely based off of what we see and what seems right to us. But can I remind you of something this morning? God is God of all. God is not just God on Sunday mornings. God is not just God during your quiet times. God is not just God when you are in trouble. God is God when you vacuum. God is God when you pump gas. God is God when you talk to your neighbor. God is God when you turn on Netflix. But Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. And the only way we can please him when, you are, when we are at home or when we are away is when the entirety of our lives is marked by a never-ending pursuit of walking by faith and not by sight. And if Samson teaches us anything, it's that if you are led by your sight, at some point your sight will fail you. But here's the second kind of point of application I want to try to draw out from this point. I also want to encourage you to take heart that your sin will never thwart God's plans. I mean, can we just pause and praise God for that for a minute? Like, I don't know how holy you think you are when you walked in here, but I came in a mess. And I am thankful that my sin will never thwart God's plans. That means that if you are here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus, you can never sin so much that God can't accomplish salvation for you. There is no amount of out-sinning God's grace. God's not up there in heaven right now saying, man, I, I was hoping to save her. Well, that's just too much sin for me to work with. You can never out God's grace. Your sin can never thwart God's plans. But if you're here and you're a Christian, that's not just good news for the unbelievers. That's good news for you who are here who have placed your faith in Jesus. You can never sin so much that God cannot finish what he has started in you. Praise God. Amen. Praise God. You can never sin so much that God cannot finish what he started in you. There is no amount for you as a Christian about sinning God's grace. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it with you or without you. Now listen, that's not a license for you to sin more and do whatever you want. That truth should motivate us to love God more and want to be obedient to him more. He is that good. He is that kind. He is that faithful that even when we turn away from him, he won't turn away from us. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Praise God that our individual sin won't stop a sovereign God. This is moving slower than I thought. Let's jump into the last thing I want you to see. Here it is. The sin of God's people won't stop a sovereign God. So not only the sin of the individual, but the sin of God's collective people won't stop a sovereign God. Let me walk through chapter 15 with you here and show you this. So basically, Samson's in a rage. He goes back home. His father-in-law has given his bride to somebody else. But Samson goes back to Timnah a fourth time. Says there at the beginning in verse 15, or chapter 15, later on during the wheat harvest, so some time has passed, Samson took a young goat as a gift and visited his wife. He says, I want to go to, wife, I want to, uh, go to my wife in her room, but her father would not let him enter. And his father goes on to explain, and there is a sense of sincerity in the father where he wasn't trying to deceive Samson. He just thought Samson was done with them. He's like, I I thought you didn't want her anymore. Like the way you left in a rage. Again, in sin. Another loss for Samson. Samson is hot. He's like, that was my bride. And so he says, this time I will be blameless in what I do to the Philistines. I'll be blameless. This is what Samson does. It's wild. Samson 
goes and catches a whole bunch of fox. Foxes? Fox? He, foxes. English, what, yeah? Foxes? All right. Goes and catches a whole bunch of foxes. Which, which again is a feat in and of itself to catch all these foxes. He grabs two of them and he puts their tails together. And in between the tails, he ties a torch. And he lights the torch on fire so that these two foxes, and he does this with, with a whole mess of them, will then run and burn everything along the way. Now, the author gave us an important note at the beginning in verse 1. It's the wheat harvest. This is where they're getting their wheat to last them through the winter. This is where they're getting their wheat to sell to take care of, the, to sell to take care of themselves. And so Samson sends these foxes loose, and it says it burns up everything. It burns up the wheat they had harvested and even the wheat that they had not harvested. Samson lays waste to the Philistines, to their source of income and survival. And so the Philistines then, they're angry about it. And they said, who did this? And somebody says, it was Samson. Well, why did Samson do it? Because his father-in-law, the, the Timnonite, gave away his bride to somebody else. And so the Philistines then go and take the father-in-law and the bride, and they burn them to death. Samson goes and hides in a cave. He goes and hides in a cave. And then the Philistines come and they attack Judah. While Samson is hiding in a cave because of what he's done. They're trying to get Samson. They want to kill Samson too. And so the people of Judah go to the Philistines and say, Why are you attacking us? Philistines explain to them what has taken place with Samson. Now let me pause there. What should the people of God have already done? Driven out the Philistines. God's giving them another opportunity to fight the Philistines. Why? The Philistines had, had already attacked them. And rather than fight the Philistines, rather than do what God had called them to do at the beginning of Judges, all the way back in Deuteronomy 7, they join with the Philistines and say, we'll go get Samson for you. So they go to Samson in the cave. They say, Samson, what did you do, my guy? He says, this is what I did. And he says, well, we got to take you. And so Samson says, just do me a favor. Bind me, but don't kill me. And they said, we're not going to kill you. We'll take you to the Philistines. We'll let them kill you. They bind him. They take him to the Philistines. But when he gets to the Philistines, the Spirit of God comes upon him. And it says the ropes, they burn off of him like flax. Samson then takes a jawbone from an animal and kills a thousand Philistines in the power of the Spirit. And then Samson sings songs about how great he is. Sings songs about how great he is. And what I want you to see is that the people of God in that moment should have been the ones fighting the Philistines, not Samson. They should have driven them out before it had even come to this and they failed and they should have gone to war with them when they were provoked by the Philistines but instead they side with the Philistines and agree to turn over Samson to them and once again despite the failures of the people despite their sin and disobedience and it was sin and disobedience God still accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. Now, in all of this, listen to me, what I'm trying to tell you, I know it's a big story, we're covering a lot, I'm giving you a 30,000 foot view. In all of this, God, we, we learn that God has never needed anybody on his side to accomplish what he wants. 
God didn't need Samson to get it right. God didn't need Israel and Judah to get it right. God is God all by himself. And even as Paul says, the weakness of God is still stronger than the strongest of men. Now, we know Paul's playing there because there ain't no weakness in God. He is all powerful. But even if he could be weak, his weakness would still trump the strength of all men. And the author of Judges is trying to get us to see that there is just something about God. He is a faithful God. He is a consistent God. He is a God who is not thwarted, and He always finishes what He starts. And the sin of God's people won't stop a sovereign God. And I want to tell you this morning, that is both good news and a challenge to you. It's good news to you and to me because the church has gotten a lot of stuff wrong in its history. The church got the Crusades wrong, with some estimate that up to 9 million people were killed in a holy war for the sake of Christ. I ain't got time to walk through all Let's just jump to the U.S. Can we do that? There's enough there that we could look at. The church got slavery wrong when it promoted and perpetuated 12.5 million image bearers being stolen off the shores of their home in Africa, with 2.5 million of them never making it across the Middle Passage. The church got Jim Crow wrong when it attempted to argue from Scripture that separate but equal was a divine command from God. You don't believe me? Go Google Bob Jones Sr.'s sermon 1960 on Easter morning. The church has gotten immigration wrong. Seeing and advocating for keeping other nations away as if the call of Christians is not to bring the nations together. The church has gotten politics wrong, worshiping pagan politicians and political parties rather than the risen king. The church has gotten justice wrong, thinking that just preach the gospel somehow absolves us of our responsibility to do good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the fatherless, and plead the widow's case. But, but what I want you to see is that despite our our failures and flaws, despite our stains and sorrows, despite our rebellion and unrighteousness, God has never given up on the church. And for as much, as much damage as the church has done, as much as it's gotten wrong, God still finds a way to use the church to do even more good. But don't misunderstand me. It's not because we are so great, but because our God is so sovereign that even the sin of God's own people won't stop God from growing his church and getting his glory. When we are faithless, he is faithful. But it's not just good news to us. It's also a challenge to us. Because if God refuses to abandon his people even when their shortcomings are on full display, what makes you think you have the right to abandon them? There is a movement happening right now. Get on Twitter if you want to. Type in the hashtag exvangelical. People who are leaving the church because they're so fed up with the church's faults and failures. I'll be honest with you. I'm fed up with the church's faults and failures. And I make up the church. I'm fed up with my faults and failures. <laughs> but the fact that God has never given up on the church means that we can't, too. We can't either. There is this idea, and I, I just want to try to kill it because you're going to hear it. You might want to say it. There's this idea, I'm done with the church. I, it's just me and Jesus. I can be a Christian and have a relationship with Jesus, and I don't need the church. And in theory, that might be true because we know that the gospel, our salvation, depends on our belief that Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserve to die, was crucified, buried, rose from the grave. That is the gospel. You place your faith in that. You can have full and free forgiveness of sin, but there's something about the fact that all throughout Scripture, there is no covenant God without his covenant people. 
You cannot have the God of covenant if you don't want the covenant that the God offers. And it is to be his people collectively. There is not a category for faithfulness of you and Jesus with no other Christians around. But the Bible speaks to it here. If God hasn't given up on the church, what makes you think you... Let's just get more practical. There are times when people in this body are going to make you mad. Y'all made me mad. I've made you mad. And what this text is positioned to teach us is that it does, we don't have liberty to walk away from one another. How do we treat people the way that God has never treated us? I said a lot. Let me try to bring this thing to a close here. I'm in my seat after this, I promise. I know we've talked about a lot, and I pray it's been helpful. I pray it was encouraging, and if not, stick with me for this last part, because I'm just going to tie it back to Jesus, and that's the best part. Amen? Look at how chapter 15 ends, beginning in verse 17. When he finished speaking, so this is after he kills all these folks with a jawbone, thousand of them. It says he threw away the jawbone, and he named that place Jawbone Hill. That's original. <laughs> he became... <laughs> He became very thirsty. Now hear this. He became very thirsty and he called out to the Lord. You have accomplished this great victory through your servant. Must I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? So God split a hollow place in the ground, Elohi, and water came out of it. And after Samson drank, his strength returned and he revived. That is why he named it Hakor Spring, which is still in Lahi today. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. And I love this chapter because chapter 15 ends with the reminder that the only thing that allowed Samson to accomplish all that he had accomplished despite his sin and struggle despite his faults and failures was that the Spirit of God was upon him. Because at the end of the day, without the Spirit, this man had nothing. He killed a thousand men with a jawbone, and then he sang a song about himself. But you see how fickle this man actually is after all that he has just accomplished. He can't even deliver himself from being thirsty. So what did God have to do? He had to show up again. And the author is trying to remind us of something. Throughout his whole story of Samson, the author is trying to remind us of something. That at the end of the day, Samson is an insufficient judge. Right? It's not just at the end of the story in chapter 15. It's actually riddled throughout the whole story. Whenever Samson had his back against the wall, one thing and one thing alone got him through. The Spirit of God coming upon him. We saw it in 1325 as the Spirit moved Samson to the place God wanted him because he wasn't going. We saw when a lion ran up on him and the spirit of the Lord had to come upon him so that he could rip the lion in two. We saw it in 1419 when Samson battled the 13 men and on his own was insufficient and the spirit of God had to come upon him. We saw it when Samson was bound and being led to the Philistines in 1514 when the spirit of the Lord came upon him and the ropes that were on his arms and wrists became like burnt flax and fell off. Anytime Samson needed a victory, here it is, he could not get it on his own. He needed the Spirit of the Lord because on his own he was an insufficient deliverer. He was even so insufficient that he couldn't deliver himself from thirst grip. How can a man who can't even overcome his own thirst overcome the power of sin and break the cycle? And that's what the author's trying to get you to see. How is this guy going to be a sufficient deliverer? The answer, he's not. Here's what I'm trying to get to. 
The author is once again trying to remind us that we need a deliverer who has the ability to deliver himself all by himself. All right, we need to deliver a deliverer who can deliver himself when the enemies of this world raise up against him. It wasn't Othniel. It wasn't Ehud. It wasn't Deborah. It wasn't Gideon. It wasn't Jephthah. And it wasn't Samson. None of them were deliverers who could deliver themselves. But can I tell you who could? Now, his name was Jesus. And when no one was a sufficient deliverer, God said, I'll take care of this all by myself. And God sent his son, Jesus, God in flesh, to overcome sin in this life by living in perfect obedience to the Father and then paying the payment for our sin with his death where the perfect son of God died the death that we deserve to die. And as he hung on that cross, the religious leaders were unknowingly recounting the failures of all the deliverers who had come before and simultaneously testifying to the sufficiency of Jesus when they cried out, he saved others, but can he save himself he is the king of israel let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him he trusts in god and let god rescue him now and jesus said to him i'll do you one better i'll stay on the cross because it's easier for a living man to stay alive than for a dead man to get up and jesus didn't need any help delivering himself jesus didn't need any help getting up from the grave because he is god all by himself i'll tear down the temple and raise it up in three days all by myself and three days later he walked out out of that grave, proving to be the sufficient Savior that we have always needed, proving to be the divine deliverer. And if the cross of Christ declares anything to us, it declares that sin won't stop a sovereign God. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the fact that despite our rebellion and unrighteousness, despite our struggle and our failure, despite the fact that sin is still present in our lives, you are on your throne and you have never been thwarted. We thank you that when no sufficient deliverer was found, God, you came yourself and lived the life that we should have lived. You died the death that we deserve to die. And the story doesn't end there. Because three days later, you rose from the grave. And you walked out of that tomb with victory and power and salvation in your hand. And now we know what a sufficient deliverer looks like. And so help us to trust you with all that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.